0: Hey guys, welcome to Not Just a Hashtag Podcast, presented by Trees of Hope. I'm your host, Nicole Escobar, with my co-hosts, Anissa, Kristen, and Mariah. On this podcast, we will be discussing the epidemic of sexual abuse, its realities, and the unfiltered ways in which it has affected all of our lives. We share our personal stories and how our lives have been restored. While this podcast is for everyone, we do want to let you know that we use several trigger words and this is geared more towards adult audiences. This podcast is for anyone who wants to educate themselves on the statistics behind sexual abuse, signs to look out for, and how to prevent it from happening. So let's get to it. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 15 of the Not Just a Hashtag podcast. This week we have a special guest, uh, but before we get into that, we wanna hear from Anissa, who has a pretty interesting
1: tidbit. It is a tidbit. Is that's it called? The, a that's tidbit? the probably the best word for it because we were like, is this a current event? It's more like a fact. Um, we were talking today. What originally sparked it was. Um, I had been seeing pictures on my social media, um, not from people I follow, one specific account that um, just kind of creates a platform for women to share their experiences of sexual harassment or just like relationships gone very south very quickly. And so she's been posting pictures of what fraternities are posting outside of their houses right now as college is starting and I honestly, I'm not going to even say what they say, but just awful degrading things about like, you know, parents dropping their daughter off and what they're going to do to their daughter. And it is really scary and awful. And so we started talking about that. We looked up an article. This is from USA Today. and. The title is Rape at College, Why Back to School is So Dangerous for Women, and then it talks about how there's this red zone, and that's from the first day on campus until Thanksgiving break, which is a really big chunk of time, when the risk of sexual assault is said to be highest. More than 50% of college sexual assaults take place between August and November, according to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which advocates nationally against sexual violence. College women ages 18 to 24 are three times more likely than women in general to experience sexual violence. Um, You know, I guess it is just more like it's hard because then what do we follow that up with? Like, here's the statistic, like, be more careful. Like, um. And then it does too. like the article talks about like, how are we dealing like, you know, we're telling women like, don't walk alone, make like watch your drink, make sure you're careful. And then what are we doing when it comes to men and like, hey, doesn't matter what she does. And we've talked about this before, like, it's never your fault. So even if you were alone, and even if you didn't watch your drink, and that's how you were assaulted, it's still not your fault. And so it does really raise the question, like, what are we doing to address men to say it doesn't matter you don't do this so I guess just yeah be careful I know that there are some college girls who listen to this and my little sister is in college and reading that just like scares the ever-living caca out of me so we care about you be safe that's a really scary um, statistic I have never heard of the red zone in my life Well, that's because we went to Christian colleges and hopefully they were
0: not doing that on the campus. But I also did go to a public college that was um, here in South Florida. don't want to say the name, but they didn't have that either. And so I feel like in South Florida, we don't have much of that
1: of like camp. I think that big state schools like there is especially when you have like fraternities and sororities and you put a bunch of of like a hormonal people together and then include alcohol you just like you never know what the outcome is going to be like good not really good or bad I think it's just and two like trying to discover your place on campus and your group and who you're going to be friends with like it's just such a convoluted situation that you throw these stinking 18 year old kids 17 year old kids into and I don't know. I just feel like who invented college? Who did this? (laughs) like, (gasps) True. Well, it's a
0: bummer hearing about that. And um, definitely just want to encourage you if you're listening and let's say something does happen to you. um, There is a place that can help you through this. Um, I'm going to provide you with two names. One is the Nancy J. Cotterman Center that they can help anyone anywhere. That's what they told us. And you can find that information out on episode number four. Yes. Okay. And then after that, if you've gone with individual counseling through them, you can come to a support group at Trees of Hope. So there's something to help you there. And so we just definitely pray that you're not affected by this. Um, But if you have been already, these are two great resources for you.
1: And two, if you're not in Broward County, just like Nicole said, they can't help anyone anywhere. But if you like we all have literally a computer at our fingertips with smartphones now, you can literally Google like rape or crisis centers and you're going to be given different places available in your area. Specifically, if you're not in Broward or Florida and you do want like an in-person service, like if you need a rape kit or you need like a forensic medical exam or whatever you need you're going to be able to find those things if you just Google it. Exactly. Thank you, Anissa. Okay, so we have a special
0: guest. This person is my friend, and I'm very happy that she's here with us. I'm going to give a little info about her. Her name is Holly Friggin. Did I say that right? Pretty close. Pretty close. <laughs> okay. It's it's definitely an interesting last name. Did you get made fun of often with that? I did. Okay. I did.
2: My husband told me that he never got made fun of, but when I got married and changed my last name, I got made fun of all the time.
0: I'm sure. Yeah. Like the minute we said it, we were like friggin'. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, sorry. I was Oliva. My last name was Oliva and it was like, Oliva oh, me alone. So I equally got made fun
1: of. Oliva oh, oh, me alone. So
0: Don't start calling me that. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: not as bad like my first name and last name well anissa stecker everyone's like anissa Stechert. like no one's <laughs> ever gotten my first and last name now it's mellinger and people are like, mellinger and i'm like great <laughs> i yeah, love that true. yeah
0: <laughs> everybody gets my last name 100 right all the time escobar but they always look at me they like look through me like we're looking for a little Latina <laughs> Colombian girl. And I'm like, hey, what's up, guys? <laughs> this tall, blonde, blue eyed. <laughs> green. I have green eyes.
1: Oh, my God. She's like
0: one of my best friends. And and she then, doesn't know my freaking eye color.
1: First of all, <laughs> they have hints. I guess they do look a lot like this. She wall. has clearly blue eyes. Okay. Nicole is one of those people that's like, out in the sun, you can see they're blue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I come True, inside do, and then too. they look green. I know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so anyways, uh, Holly is not only a dear friend, but she actually comes with a laundry list of great credentials. So she is a mental health counselor. She does trauma-focused therapy with children in foster care and who have been adopted She has three beautiful kids. Um, Every time I see them on Instagram, I'm like, please, God, give me kids that look like that. And she has the sweetest husband, who has been her high school sweetheart. Mm -hmm. And you married him. (laughs) And he's also a gentleman. He's super sweet. And they're godly people and just really sweet and amazing people. So welcome. Thank you. Yes, we're so happy that you're
2: here. What a great intro, man. (laughs) I feel special. (laughs) You
0: should. Well, you are. You're very special. So I just will give this little tidbit that when I had met you, when the minute I met you, I knew something was special about you. And I think like, within a couple of minutes, I had already asked you if you wanted to be on the board. I can't remember exactly. (laughs) I was like, oh, what do you do? Oh, you're a mental health counselor? Cool, you wanna be on the board at Trees of Hope. And then um, I just felt like you would be a perfect fit here because you come with this background of not only being a victim of Mm. sexual abuse, but also caring for those people, but specifically those who struggle with eating disorders. Mm. So that's what we're gonna be talking about today. It's definitely a hard topic, But I think you're gonna, if you're somebody who has an eating disorder and you've been sexually abused, you're gonna hear a lot of things that are gonna give you hope today. Mm -hmm. And I know Holly's the person to bring that. So first, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your husband, kids, your family, all that stuff, we wanna know everything.
2: Awesome. Okay. So like you said, um, I married my high school sweetheart. I'm originally from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, We moved down here, I think it's been almost 12 years, which is crazy. So I think I'm officially kind of a South Floridian. (laughs) It took a while to own that (laughs) title because this is a very interesting place, especially coming from the true South. Um, So we moved down here about 12 years ago. I have three children, a 12-year-old son, a six-year-old daughter, and a four-year-old daughter. Um, And... I originally, actually, my undergrad was in tourism management, so I did tourism for many years. When I moved to Florida, I actually worked for um, an agency that did convention services. We would plan big convention groups that would come into the area. And I know through that job, I loved it. Like, I have the hospitality part in me, but there was always something missing, and I was really sick at the time which I'll get into later but that's kind of what led me down the journey to become a therapist.
0: Mm. What so, school did you go to to become a therapist? Uh, I went to Nova. Okay. Yes. Are you a shark? I am a shark. <laughs> <laughs> that's your mascot right? It is my right? mascot. I've our always. <laughs> my smash <laughs> Because it's not the best mascot. It's actually like It's, like, aggressive. We are the sharks. But I'm more of a dolphin person. My my secret dream job is to be a dolphin Dolphin trainer.
2: trainer.
1: Yes,
0: it really is. But I guess that's the point of a mascot. I
1: was about to say, Nicole is so funny. She was like, why would you want this, like, intimidating (laughs) animal that's at the top of the food chain to be a mascot? It's
2: true. I'm like, have you ever heard of the
1: bangles, the tigers, (laughs) the bears? Have you ever heard of the
0: flying elves? So that's why... That's a letter, if y'all need to know. Okay, first of all, I know that that's like a street somewhere. No, that's a school called Fort Lauderdale High with the flying L's as our
1: mascot. I think that maybe it's a street name down here then. There is a street. Because I is. laugh every time I see it. I'm like, oh, yeah, a, a flying f- L. I just feel <laughs> like it would be like a... What does that even mean,
0: a flying L? Well, they say that it comes from... Um, all my alumni <laughs> out there, please. I hope I don't There's do us so harm here. But they say it comes from... Losers. L- no. And that's what everybody does say when no. you walk onto their campus and you're, you know, they Ooh. throw up the L sign and yeah but it's based on a guy who ran really fast that they look like he had wings. Okay. <laughs> and I guess they couldn't be like
1: what what flies? The wingman. <laughs> He's just uh, like really good at being with you at a bar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's so special.
0: Uh, what an awesome mascot to carry in your legacy. Nicole. Yeah. I mean, even Smile. my even my uh what diploma has like just a wow. little
1: L with wings on it?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's it's you know it's not as intimidating well, as well. My high school's shark.
1: mascot was the eagles, so I can't say anything. Clap clap whoosh was a part of us our thing for a little bit, and that was humiliating. Ooh, yeah. So flying L, I can't make fun of. Okay, well, thanks. So yeah, then,
0: but yeah, shark is you know <laughs> it's intimidating. Okay, so. Tell us a little bit first about the problem that you had, and then we'll talk about the treatment that you got. Okay. So my eating disorder goes back
2: pretty much as far as I can remember, and we'll talk more about kind of what started all that for me. Um, But I I just remember always having a weird relationship with food. I started sneaking food and doing weird things with it, probably like my earliest memory is four or five, which now I know had to do with sexual abuse that had happened to me very young. Um, And... From that point forward, I always felt something was wrong with me. I knew that what I was doing with food wasn't normal, but I didn't quite know why I was doing it. Um, And it just kind of progressed over time. So in sixth grade, I grew eight inches. I'm very tall. So I grew eight inches and was pretty much the height I am now, which is 5'11 in sixth grade. And at that time in my life, I so badly wanted to disappear. I hated getting attention. Um, It triggered so much in me, and at that time, I couldn't identify what it was triggering, Um, but I hated attention, so I couldn't control my height, so it just made sense, like, let me control my weight. So I joined a quest of becoming an anorexic, and I love food. Like My story is that I'm a food addict. I'm more that way. I love food, so being anorexic was really hard for me. Um, But I became obsessed. I would like watch movies. The Tracy Gold movie was around when I was young and I videotaped it and I would watch it over and over and over and I would just do everything that I saw in there. Um, And I lost a lot of weight in a short amount of time. I got a lot of attention and it just kind of took over my life. So for many, for I probably was anorexic for about two years and I was miserable. Like I thought about food all the time. I felt crazy. I hate to use that word, but I felt crazy in my head. Um, I was a prisoner and and I hated it. And then I remember I was a competitive swimmer as well. So my body was like shutting down. I couldn't keep up with swimming and racing. And I remember one day one of my friends um, introduced me to purging. And I was like, oh, my goodness, like I'm so hungry. And I remember trying that for the first time and thinking, oh, my gosh, I found the secret. Now if I eat too much, I can just throw up and move on with my life. And that worked for me. It really did for a long time, and I think now looking back, it really was a survival coping mechanism for me. I hadn't gotten any help for all the abuse that I had been through, and I think my eating disorder served the purpose of keeping me alive because I wasn't capable of dealing with what had happened to me, and nobody provided me with the help that I needed, so I was just, like, literally surviving. Um, Yeah, and I mean, it just it really took a mind of its own. It followed me through college and into marriage and the flavor was always different so it was either sometimes I would switch between restricting or binging and purging or just binging but it was always present like I can remember like every event in my life I remember how much I weighed or what size I was I don't remember who was there I don't remember who my friends were
0: like all that mattered to me was the number um, if you don't mind, can let me ask you a little bit about your sexual abuse. So the question about your sexual abuse is what's the story there? Um, you don't have to get into too much detail, but what is the story and how did it affect you? Like, what did you learn from that?
2: Yeah. I mean, like many people, I didn't really, I wasn't able to identify my story until, into my mid 20s. So for a very long time, that wasn't part of my story. I didn't know that that's why I was using food. But when it finally started to surface for me, um, it goes back, my first experience was when I was about three and a half, maybe four. And I was at a Bible study, my parents were in the other room doing like a community group. And we would be in the back room being watched by an older boy. And um, the night that this happened, I remember my parents walked in and me and another little boy were naked. And I don't know, in their minds, it was just a funny, like age-appropriate exploration, but I knew what had happened, Um, but because they laughed about it and made a joke out of it, it became like, okay, I can't say what really happened, so that became the foundation of everything for me, Um, and it just seemed from that point forward, I found myself in situations over and over again
0: where I was the target of those kinds of things. I'm telling you, the more I tell my story, I used to feel so shameful for saying, like, my story was similar to that, and I felt like I, when I was started seeing a counselor, I literally walked in and I said, this is my story of sexual abuse, but I'm ashamed to tell people about it because it feels like it's so small on the severity scale scale and she always encouraged me, Nicole, please don't not tell that story because you have no idea. So not that I'm comforted by you, Mm -hmm. but I do find comfort knowing that I'm not alone out there. And I hope that you find comfort in me as well. Like being able to share that because I cannot tell you how many people will come and say that. And then they're like, well, I haven't told anybody. And they're like 37, 40 years old. And I'm like, do you know how it's in in the level of um, sexual abuse, nobody's sitting here going, that's severe, that's not severe. It's sexual abuse. Yeah. And it affects everybody differently, but what affects you could affect me totally different, mm-hmm. but we're still affected. Yes. And there's a wound that's in our heart and our soul, and something was awoken in us mm-hmm. that should never have been. And on top of it, there was so much
1: shame from your parents laughing. Yes, totally. And it's like... I think, too, it's so crazy when you look at an initial event that, like, you can think is small and how it sets you up for every other time you allowed yourself to be victimized and and in a situation that you didn't defend yourself. Like, it is crazy how I look back on things and I'm like, that was seemingly so small, but it just, like, set me up to always have, like, just the immediate disposition of, like, okay, like, roll over on my back, like, do whatever you want.
0: Yeah, not maybe in a coward way, but more in a let me just stuff this down, shut it up kind of way, and at
1: least just for like, me. And, and yeah, not in a coward way, but just like not, it it especially when you're that young, it messes up your development. I mean, you know better, yeah. but like from the counseling I went to, it messes up your development <laughs> so deeply and so like surprisingly, like mm-hmm. to where then your perception of things is, like, so skewed for so long. In different situations you're in, you just feel like there's no way out. Like, it's just so, yeah, I didn't mean in a coward way, just more so, like, my thing was always, like, get this over with. Mm-hmm. Always, 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 always. Like, okay, I know what you want, so, like, let's just, like, run this bit and, um, like, get you out, like, type deal, like, always, so... And I think it's hard. I mean, I think when it
2: becomes a pattern in your life, it's hard to not think that it's something that you're causing, especially when you're that young. And I've listened along to these podcasts and so many. It's the same thing. Like, I'm like, yes, that happened to me, too. And like, I felt the same way. And, you know, the way I acted with dolls was so abnormal. And and it's like all that questioning from the time you're so young, there's this theme of like something is wrong with me I'm broken I'm unworthy you know like and that just becomes the foundation of you as a human being which of course you're going to run from that no little kid can carry that
0: mm-hmm. yeah th- that's interesting that you bring the doll thing up because I know that we had talked about that with Dee but I was listening to that story back and it reminded me of a time where I
1: used to take my dolls and pounce them on top of each other <laughs> that is so crazy because it also dogged in my mind um playing with my beanie babies yeah like doing and you and I like kind of touched on it like <laughs> Nicole and I are so freaking weird we were like literally saying bye to each other and I don't know what we were talking about <laughs> but I was like yeah like whatever pervy thing I used to do with my beanie baby like we were like literally getting into our cars and like haha bye and like get in leave each other like and then I'm like oh my
0: gosh I used to do that with my Barbies yeah and what's funny is, like, we we probably have parents out there listening. If you see your kids doing things like that that are beyond their age appropriateness for sexuality, as in um, a five-year-old having two dolls in like, a sexual, in a sexual position. position, yeah, I would definitely say that's a red flag mm-hmm. to look into. Um, and so when my parents say to me, which I don't know if your parents did this, but they did to me, which really pisses me off. Um, how come you didn't tell us, right? Or wh- what, what signs would we have looked out for? And I'm like, well, there's one. My yeah. freaking dolls doing, s- humping each other.
2: Well, it's so interesting because that's what I do in therapy now is we do a lot of play therapy. So that's how we know. these. N- as, as of now, I've never had a kid come in and say I was sexually abused. It's through their play. Play is how they communicate. So we know that kids can't talk about these things, but we know that they will show you through their play. So a lot of what I do is I just observe them. I just sit there. I watch them with dolls. I watch them with, we have this cool thing called the sand tray where they can like live out their story in the sand tray and so much surfaces through that.
1: Gosh, I I want you to watch me play (laughs) and be like, help.
2: Yeah, (laughs) but how cool that they can get, like then they can get the help because as soon as you, as soon as they show you that and you start to explore it, then they're ready to tell you. So mostly they'll follow that up with the story. Um, off topic, but yes. since you said it, what would you
0: follow that up with?
2: I mean, I always think that it's, I, I would be direct. I'm all about the direct approach. I think that if a kid is showing you through their play what is happening to them, then they're ready to talk about it. So letting them lead the conversation, you don't want to take them further than they're ready to go, which is kind of like the trauma approach. Um, but allowing them to lead that conversation because if they're telling you in their play, they want to tell you. They want someone to help them.
0: Mm. So you, okay, so for instance, if you saw a child that was drawing something and it was odd, you would go, have you been sexually abused? No, No. I would say, tell me about your picture. Like, who's in there?
2: Who is that? Is that your, you know, Then they might say, oh, that's my dad. Oh, well, what's going on in the picture? Oh, well, we're laying in bed together. Oh, hmm, that's interesting. Did that happen a lot? You know, like you really let, let them lead the conversation. Okay. And they, and a lot of times these kids tell you through stories. Like that's another really good one. Let's write a story together. Tell me a story about a time you felt scared or you felt overwhelmed. And like mm. slowly through that story, it starts to
0: surface that things have happened. Mm. That's good for us to actually learn for when we do prevention workshops. Yeah. Because we're always something like. Definitely we
1: can say. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. These are good things.
0: Okay. So tell me now about um, this story of the severity of your eating disorder and what caused you to go get treatment?
2: Okay. So I think, um, like I said before, for, I think for everyone that has an eating disorder, there's a love hate relationship, which so for people that don't have one, it's so hard to understand. How could you love something that's killing you? But like I said before, it, it helped me survive. It helped me survive, you know? So like for, for a season of my life, my eating disorder was all that I had. And, You know, when I got married and all of a sudden this man was supposed to be my everything, and I realized my eating disorder is more important than he is. And that was my truth. I love my husband and I fell in love with him when I was 16 years old. But the truth was, after I got married, I realized that he was not more important than my eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for me, that was a huge reality check of where my heart was and where my priorities were. And I think also for him, he realized the extent of what my disease was. Um, and so I think at that point, um, you know, I, I realized the significance of where I was and that I couldn't do it on my own. So that was when I first started exploring treatment, which was so terrifying. <laughs> um, I was, you know, in my mid twenties, I think it was like 24. And I, I, I don't know, you see what you see on the movies. Like, it's like this terrifying place, you know, and I'm like, I'm too old for this. Or I don't even know what I thought, but I did know that I couldn't continue. I knew that my disease was going to kill me if I didn't get help. But the first time I went away, I wanted to be fixed. I was like, send me away. Tell me what to do. I'll be fixed and I'll come back all great and healthy.
0: Which leads me to this other question that is that typical mindset for somebody who has been sexually abused and then uses food as a mechanism to control their circumstances is, well, there's a one-time one, ta- one time shot at getting this right because then you're back in control again, right? Like yeah, if Yeah, and well, I think what I'm learning is that a lot of times
2: when you enter eating disorder treatment or therapy for your eating disorder to begin with, a lot of times your sexual abuse isn't even there. You're not even there yet. All you know is that what you're doing with food is dysfunctional and you haven't even gotten to what has caused it. And unfortunately, treatment centers are in the business of treating behaviors. So you check in, and they're going to treat your behavior around food, and they forget to treat the underlying cause, which is trauma and abuse. And so, I mean, you leave treatment, and you're like, okay, I have a food plan. I know what not to do with food and all this stuff, but you're the same person, and you still have all this baggage. And for me, my sexual abuse didn't truly fully surface till my last time. I was in treatment four times. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, I mean, I have pieces each time that would come forward, but fully understanding the level of my abuse and that it was not my fault did not happen until my last time. So what was special about that? Um, I think that I did more trauma work during my last, I think I was ready for more trauma work. Um, And I think that through, I had a closer relationship with my therapist. I think she was able to really lead me to the place of it not being my fault which is still that has been the hardest part of this journey you know and i love what you guys are doing because if nothing else that there's not a woman or anyone out there that's been abused that thinks it's their fault like it is not our fault Mm -hmm. we did not cause this we did not ask for it Mm -hmm. and that's so important in my healing Mm -hmm. because for so long i i thought i did something to encourage it
0: so yeah thank you so much for sharing that um your personal experience with an eating disorder and how it correlated with sexual abuse What I'd love to know more about is, since you're a mental health counselor, can you speak into the connection between sexual abuse and eating disorder and maybe how you would uh, work with a client on this? Sure, yeah. Um, I think one of the trickiest things about eating disorders, especially in
2: correlation with sexual abuse, is that, you know, the sexual abuse normally happens when somebody is very young, and food becomes the first way that the person can kind of cope with what's happened to them. So it's so intertwined into who they are. So you may have someone come into you who's 18, 19, 20, and they started abusing food in whatever way when they were four or five. Well, they also emotionally shut down at that age as well. So they didn't learn how to feel any of their feelings. They didn't learn how to cope with any of life stressors. So they walk into me and they're sick with an eating disorder. And it's like, okay, we have to go back to where this started, which is when you were four or five, and figure out how to cope as pretty much a human being. You know, at that point, they haven't learned how to cope with anything. Um, And I think my hope for the eating disorder world, which it does exist, it's starting to surface, as we've seen in all areas, this trauma focused lens is that it'll overflow into the eating disorder t- world too where we don't just look at an eating disorder as you know genetics environment but that we add this trauma focus because through my experience I was in treatment four times I have probably interacted with hundreds of women and every single one had some form of sexual abuse so there is something missing when we are in treatment and we are focused on the behaviors around food and we're not talking about what caused those behaviors. Mm. And that's where my heart breaks, because so many people go to treatment, and by the time they're stable with their weight and their behavior around food, their insurance runs out. And so their insurance says, oh, well, you gained 20 pounds. Like, you're good. You're healthy. And they haven't even gotten into the trauma work yet. And so you send these people out into the world, and they still have all this unresolved trauma. So moving forward, I mean, my dream would be to provide you know trauma-focused work. So once you're stable in a healthy place, Physically, um, that you could go in and start to work on this trauma, the sexual abuse.
1: I just <clears throat> all this like really just been sitting here listening to everything Holly's saying, and it is just like so crazy because I know like even speaking from personal experience, it's like if I'm not in the hospital, it's not that bad and it's not mm-hmm. that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. It's like always the mentality, and even just like we were talking, we took like a little hiatus, and we're talking the three of us and it's just so wild holly was talking about like this weird dichotomy that people with eating disorders have like in their brain where it's like the unhealthy part of you saying things and it's like you know it's unhealthy and you know it's like i can Mm -hmm. i can think these things and recognize like i don't want to say like oh i'm not so crazy because it's not a matter of being crazy it's like i'm not so far gone whatever like term you want to put to it that i don't recognize it as an unhealthy thought my just immediate thing afterwards is it's like really not that big of a deal because I'm not in the hospital and I'm like functioning well Mm -hmm. and so it's like my level of unhealthiness is like not cause for alarm or really any immediate action because I'm here and I'm you know like able to be a part and like in charge of my faculties so it it's just like it's crazy hearing even the reality of people going into treatment and people think because you've gained weight or, you know, you look different then you're healthy and it's not an issue anymore, but it's so, it's so wild how it is just like an immediate, like go-to coping mechanism, even after you've gone through some form of healing or treatment.
0: True. And thank you, Anissa, for sharing that. Um, Most people think of eating disorder recovery as somehow going back to what life was like before you developed an eating disorder. But do you think that's even possible?
2: Um, I think the more we learn about eating disorders, especially when we take this approach of it kind of started with an early abuse situation. I don't think there is a before, honestly. For me, I don't really remember life before. I don't remember ever being completely healthy with food, and and again, this could be different for other people because I do know that some people's journey starts later. Um, but for me, I don't I don't really know if that existed for me in my journey. Um, and you know, the the eating disorder took on such a huge part of my life. For me, it wasn't about going before; it was just letting go of the eating disorder like that was the hardest Mm. part for me it was letting go of that and moving forward you know I never really thought of it of like oh I want to go before my eating disorder I was like how do I truly let go of my eating disorder and move forward
0: so how do you let go of an eating disorder (laughs) that's a great question (laughs) I'm like tell
2: me (laughs) yes yes um I mean the number one thing is you have to want to let go of it there has to be a deep desire and that's not going to be enough but that has to be the foundation like you have to get to a place i believe where you're done fighting where you know that your life is more than a number that your life is more than a size you know and when you have that deep desire whatever your goal is you know for me it was to have a healthy pregnancy you know whatever that looks like for you you cling to that because it's going to be a really hard fight Mm. And there will be a lot of, like, two steps forward, one step back. You know, and a lot of times where your eating disorder wants to tell you, you know what, it was easier when you had me. Like, it was easier when you could use me to get through this, you know? And that's where you really dig deep and you're like, you know, I don't want to live this way
1: anymore. Mm -hmm. It's crazy because, like, I don't know if you can speak into this. Something that I've always wondered is, like, when I'm out of the country, my eating disorder is non-existent. When I was in Rome, I was, like, eating pizza every single day, like, pasta dishes like drinking wine like didn't have a care in the world when I'm in the Middle East like I'm eating pita out the wazoo like so bizarre like things I wouldn't touch like here in the U.S. where I'm like oh that's like a a bad food which I know there's no such thing as a bad food Um, I just like have always thought like wondered and David and I have even talked about it a little bit where it's like hmm I wonder why when I'm like abroad
2: Interesting.
1: Do you think maybe it has to do with the fact that
0: there's um, a connection here with things that have happened here? Mm-hmm. And that when you're here, people, places, things, those things remind you of that eating disorder, which reminds you to keep on that forward motion of having that eating disorder?
1: I feel like that makes a lot of sense. And it's even a reason why I've said like a million times, like, I need to get out of South Florida like I need to get out of South Florida because I feel like I'm always like seeing things or people South Florida is like so itty bitty I feel like you see people from like your past lives like everywhere and it's like ah (laughs) I did not want to be reminded of that um
0: well, especially in this Christian world that we live in, especially here in South Florida, I think.
1: Cause Circles I, run so small. So small, small here. Yeah. I
0: never run into anyone from high
1: school mm. or middle school. And so I, everyone from church. And yeah, I'm always like, churches, where are yeah. you
0: guys? Where yeah. are you? Like, Because I want to run into them because I'm yeah. like, I look good now, <laughs> people who bullied me. Mm. I was bullied, guys. You have no idea. I was wow. just like when you say you were 5'11", mm. I was 5'10". Uh-huh. And I look back at all my... Um, yearbook I had one signature in it like hey have a good summer like basically you fat pig like that's kind of like what it felt like but my mom brought something to my attention when I was looking at it is that there was a gazillion pictures of me and she's like I thought that they were making fun of me by putting me in these pictures but she was like no they must have thought you were pretty because they put you in all these pictures and I was like wow it's interesting when you're in that time period of your life and you hear those negative words spoken over you how you can start to believe things to be true like you're gross you're ugly and all this stuff and then all you need is just a little bit of time and a little bit of confidence to look back and be like oh wow
1: i (laughs) did not know you were
0: bullied i was hardcore bullied i literally just came to terms with this like about a year ago yeah i was and people are like oh what? you know look at and i'm like no man like i had Mm. to literally tell myself every day i went to school that i mattered that just because i was tall like Mm. you um that i wasn't a gigantor Mm. um they used to throw stuff in my hair pick at me, this one kid specifically made my life complete hell. hell. And I found out later that he had a crush on me, which I get that. But at that time, my life was destroyed. He would throw boogers on me. He would do all kinds of horrible things to me. And my brother did not help it either. He, he was like, when he saw me in the hallway, he'd be like, Hey, what's up fatty? And he would make it go on and on. And that really hurt me, too, because I felt like I was very alone in my freshman year. Mm. In, oh, my
1: gosh. I did not know any of this. Mm. That's so hard.
0: So which caused me to be very, like, strong mm-hmm. outwardly. But inside, I was really, like, sad Aww. and stuff. And the only reason why I know this particular time period of my life is, you know, reminds me of this topic is because it was always about my weight. Mm. And But I, I was able to, like I said, I'd go home. My dad would always reassure me. You're beautiful. Mm. You're, you know, people love you. Don't worry about it. And so it was like, well, I believe, and I believed that. So I didn't let it define me. You know what I mean? I but that. I could have. Yeah. I really could yeah. have. Sure. I'm like, what? The hell, what am I doing here? No. <laughs> I'm just like, like shocked. I like didn't
2: know that.
0: Wow, that's so hard. Um. Okay. So then. Oh, I said it. Okay. So can you tell me the difference between normal health consciousness and disordered thinking?
2: Yes, I can. And it
0: actually, it took me a very long time to get there.
2: Um, but I can remember the first day that I had where I didn't obsess over my body and food. And I remember getting through that day and looking back, and going, oh my gosh, I just made it 24 hours and I didn't have a negative thought about my body or food. I'm like, I can't believe that just happened. Um, But for me, I always say my recovery, the foundation of my recovery is freedom. So my last time checking into treatment, I knew that if if, if my recovery at all was followed by rules and regulations or I had any control over what my recovery was gonna look like, I wasn't gonna make it. So I knew that my recovery had to be freedom, and not just freedom from the behaviors, but freedom from the shame, freedom from the scale, freedom from my body. Um, And so that's kind of what I worked for from the start. I I didn't want to just say, hey, I haven't binged or purged for a year. I wanted to say, I haven't binged and purged, and I'm starting to believe that I'm so much more than my eating disorder. I'm starting to believe that I am a good daughter, and I'm a good friend, and I'm a good mom. Um, And that became like my... My mantra was like that's what I would always say is like I don't want to ever be defined by a number again I want people to say you know what I just met this girl named Holly and she was so kind and authentic and vulnerable and it really inspired me and that's really my goal today like when I leave a situation I want people to remember me by that and so the days that are hard or if I have that weird day where or my head wants to tell me that I'm not worthy or that I've gained weight or that You know, my pants are tight. I'm like, you know what, Holly, it doesn't matter. Like, that's not what can be the focus today. That's not, it doesn't matter.
0: Okay. But I do want to ask this question um, and help me understand because sometimes there is a time where you put on your pants and they are too tight. And now all of a sudden you are having to change your pant size. Mm -hmm. And, but how do you get yourself back to a healthy place and know that you do need to lose a little bit of weight because you're actually entering into like a non healthy zone? But you also know. Without obsessing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think for me personally, for my recovery, um, pretty much if I'm not abusing food, my body has pretty much say the same. There's times where my pants feel a little tighter because maybe I'm bloated. Maybe I'm on my period. Maybe I did eat a little too much, but like it kind of ebbs and flows. And so for me, if my pants are too tight, honestly, personally, I buy another size of pants. Because for me, the obsession over fitting into those pants will take over my whole life. So if my pants get too tight and I know that I am not abusing food, okay, maybe hormonal stuff's going on for me. I've had three children. Like, maybe I'm bloated. Maybe there's water weight. You know, and I go back to, like, is there any food in my life that I'm – am I emotionally eating? You know, am I doing weird things with food? And if I'm not, then maybe my body's just changing because I'm getting older. I don't know. So you go and buy a new pair of pants? You just
0: go right for it. (laughs) I
2: mean, it wasn't as easy in the beginning. But I think the fuller my life got over time and over recovery, the easier it got. Because for me, and, and you know, it's really hard if you don't have an eating disorder to understand that. But for me, like my eating disorder almost killed me. So when I look at it that way, I'm like, oh, size up in my pants or like be dead. I mean, and that's kind of how I had to look at it for a long time. Like the severity of what I was doing to myself. I shouldn't be alive. Um, And I would go back to an early recovery all the time. I'd say, do you want to live or do you want to die? You know, and that was what kept me going. And that's what kept me making one right choice after the next. It's like, just do the next right thing. Do the next right thing one day at a time. Do the next right thing. So how do you know what a baseline good weight is then? I saw a nutritionist for the first five years of my recovery. So I would check in with her. I, did, I personally don't weigh myself. I do blind weights. Um, the number of the weight is very triggering for me. I just don't want to know. I don't, I don't need to know, honestly. So I would see a nutritionist, and um, I was on a very set food plan for a long time. Five years, probably, a very similar food plan. So I really trusted my body. I saw that when I didn't do weird things with food, my body pretty much stayed where it wanted to be. You know, if I had a meal where I ate a little too much, my body didn't change 10 pounds like I had convinced myself it would do, you know. It's like, okay, I ate a huge dinner. What are you going to do? You're going to move on. And tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to eat how you normally do. And it's amazing that when you're not binging, purging, restricting, playing the game of like overeating, not and then eating too little, like your metabolism just does what it's supposed to
1: do. Right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Our bodies are so forgiving. Yes. Like they really are. So let's say you started doing like an
0: exercise routine, like, you know, me and Anissa, we're going to be running a 26.2 miles for the sake of Trees of Hope yes. and we're trying to raise money. But,
1: um, you all know, if you donate $26 and 20 cents, nice. <laughs> all of our listeners, Please.
0: If, like currently right now we have like 1,300 listeners. If every one of you donated that $26
1: and 20 cents, what does that Since. come to? Okay, wait, let's do this quick maths really quick. $26,000. So let's do it's 26.20 times 1300. Mm hmm we would have $34,000 and oh wait, $34,060. Oh my gosh.
0: Do you know what we could do with that? The lives we can change. That's awesome. I'm in, I'm in,
1: I'm (laughs) donating. I'm not running it, but I will do it.
0: 2620. Okay. You guys,
1: it's the Miami marathon, 2020, February 9th. If you want to show up with signs.
0: Yeah. Okay, so... Actually, don't do that. Who yeah, knows? I don't, I know. We don't know no what one the come. state no, of I our... I know. I'm
1: like, I don't know what I'm going to look like when I crawl over that little finish line. we are going to be it. like, is she okay? Can we get a medic? <laughs> no, but my
0: question is, is um, let's say you start to lose weight just because of things that are going on in your life, as in you're getting healthier, or I don't know if that's the right word to mm-hmm. say, but you are leaning out. Mm-hmm. What would you do then? I mean, my
2: number one advice, if you are struggling with an eating disorder, please see a professional nutritionist because we cannot trust our minds to make those decisions. We probably know more about food and calories and what we should be eating than a dietitian, but we can't be trusted. So please go seek professional guidelines um, and, you know, have accountability have somebody in your life that you can be completely honest with and that was really hard for me in the beginning because so much of my eating disorder was a secret and was lies and manipulation so to learn how to be completely honest about what I was doing with food or even just the thoughts I was having still um, was really hard for me but that's what got me through was having that one person that I could say you know what I'm thinking this about food or I'm I'm my pants feel lighter and it makes me want to eat less, you know, like find that person and be real and have support.
0: Mm. Um, Before this episode, I was listening to trying to understand this because I don't struggle with this and I struggle with a bunch of other things. So don't you guys worry about me. (laughs) I got my own stuff. But um, what I I was listening to a lady talk about eating disorders because I wanted to kind of get the scope of the problem. And she brought up the fact that a lot of it has to do with shame. So people will not talk about their eating disorder, especially at a church group, because in church, it's socially acceptable to be eating like all of the events that we go to have food and lots of food and like dessert parties, dessert night, this and that. And so she was saying it's basically super triggering for someone who's been um, has an eating disorder. And then in addition to that, it makes you go, I can't tell anyone here because they're not going to get it. Do you find that to be true? I
2: do think that's really hard. I think it is really hard to fully understand unless you've been in the mind of eating eating disorder. Um, and I do think that there's this really scary thing about telling people and being afraid that they're going to watch me with my food. So I know even when I was doing the right things with food and early recovery, I always felt like people were watching me. And that was probably maybe just my disorder. But I always felt like people were kind of like looking at the foods I was eating. Are you eating enough? Like, what is she doing with food? And there's definitely a ton of shame. I mean, the things that we do with food are, it's, it, for me, it was very shameful. And it covered up shame. So there was like a double layer of shame for me.
1: Wow, I felt really inspired by all this. I just texted my nutritionist. It's worth it. Yeah, it is really worth it. And I love that you were watching those videos or listening to that woman um, talking about the eating disorder stuff. It's like just such a weird – and if you're not in it, I know like – even just like talking with um friends in college I haven't really talked about it that much now that I'm out which I've been out for a while but it's kind of weird to just like casually bring up like my anorexia like it's not a a great like uplifting topic in conversation and people don't know how to respond and it can get really awkward and Um, I always considered it, like, super Mm attention-seeking, sounding like just really struggling with my ED. So when I did talk about it in college, um, you know, when I had just been diagnosed, um, you know, people, like, really don't know how to respond. And um, I know we're going to get into, like, things to say and stuff, but... I do just feel like very, I don't want to use the word convicted, but like inspired by this conversation. So much of what Holly has said about like um, a really weird thing that I do is I um, the reason why I have so many clothes is because I always keep clothes that are too small for me and clothes that are too big for me because I fluctuate so much. And so I have like my um, goal skinny stuff in a bottom drawer and then I have like backup sad pants in another drawer for if I gain weight. So I have like ten billion pairs of jeans because mm-hmm. some some are a double zero mm-hmm. and some are a six. Because I don't know. But even just Holly talking about like, um, you know, if you're eating if you're not doing weird things with food, your body is gonna like find its happy place and stay there. And And throw
2: the skinny ones out. That's a free tip. Free tip. Go burn them tonight. It's so empowering. It took me so long to do
0: it, but toss them out, man. I was going to tell you to do that because you're then always looking to them to be in that saying, I'm not there yet. I'm going to be there. And then it becomes a goal and like an obsessive thing.
1: I think like even just growing up, like I love my mom so dearly. She's one of my best friends, but it's like she always had gold pants. Mm. I feel mm. like everyone's mom, like you always grow up hearing, like those are my gold pants, mm. this is my goal outfit. I would agree with that. I right? just went
0: swimming at my parents' house over the weekend, and my mom goes, I said, Mom, can I borrow something to wear to go into the pool? I like, forgot. I'll give
1: you my gold bathing suit. She
0: goes, she hands me her bathing suit from when she was like thir- um, 15, 16 Stop years her. old, like some young, young, young age. My mom's like 76. No. It was super sexy. I was like, <laughs> what? The, my walked out my brother goes you look like a pinup doll <laughs> but it was a one piece and i was like whoa this fits me and i was like this is crazy and and i'm wondering did my mom struggle <laughs> with like but now i'm thinking about it that that has always been an obsession in my home about like you know you weigh this weight you feel good about yourself you end up going to parties you do fun things but when you don't weigh this weight you say oh, i'm probably just going to stay in you don't want to be in pictures i don't want to be in pictures yeah. And I will say my mom for my wedding was not in a lot of pictures because she wasn't hundred percent happy with the way she looked. Mm. Now I am the next generation. I have the choice to continue that on and I refuse to. Mm. So even when I have been heavy, I heavier than I am, I have said, let me embrace the old picture thing because I need to have memories with these people. And I can't always f- depend on my photographic memory. <laughs> Yeah, to bust those out. My husband's really good at that. He's like, I don't give a crap what weight I am. <laughs> like, just take the picture. Yeah, Raph's also like this big. No, I just held not.
1: my. Lo- I, he's like a very slim, trim man. We just talked about this
0: actually, Lauren, a good friend of Holly and I's. Um, she goes, Raph's not thin. And I was like, I'm going to come across this table. I'm going <laughs> to beat slim you. slim and trim. But I know. And I was like, because I was offended for him when she said it. And I was well, like, no Lauren, go- No stop. guy
1: wants to be skinny. I know but that's, that's what really she said. offensive is if you're like, oh, you're skinny. Because guys are like, I want to be this little meaty, meaty beefcake. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, the reality is guys struggle with oh, eating yeah. disorders too. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yes. I mean I've never dated anyone like that, but do you can you speak any into that that you know of like what do guys do differently or do they do I the mean, same?
2: I think guys, there's an even larger level of shame and you guys probably see that in the sexual, sexual abuse, abuse realm yeah, yeah because I mean women have been kind of paving the way and it's it's like classified as like a white woman's disease. I mean, so even when you look at cultural, Diversity when it comes to eating disorders, like there, there's stuff, there's work that needs to be done, you know. Um, and so my hope is that as we move forward, just like what you're doing, that we come together as as women and we we have a voice for everyone, you know, for men, for different cultures, for
0: for everyone to get the help they need. Mm. Okay, so I love that you shared that about the diversity and having a voice for all of those different issues um, and people. But one of the things that, or people that I would say we overlook here in America is people who struggle with obesity. Would you say that obesity is a eating disorder?
2: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't make a blanket statement to say all obesity is, but it's definitely a form for a lot of people. So when I came to South Florida, I actually ended up in a treatment center that took a very controversial approach, which was more of an addiction piece. So I was in treatment with people that were compulsive overeaters, anorexic, bulimic, like we all had different bodies. Um, And that that was really cool for me because I got to see that our eating disorder, while it takes on different forms, it's all covering the same issue. So you think about for me, my anorexia started because I didn't want to develop breasts. I didn't want to have any male attention. So I hid in like a 12 year old body. Um, While some people, some of my friends in treatment would say they overate and they enjoyed being not enjoyed, but they hid in their larger body because that also protected them from getting a lot of male attention. Um, So, you know, when you look at someone, you don't always know the full story. And I think that's kind of the point to take away is that eating disorders they all look different but the common theme is all the same it's all this like need to control and to cover up shame
0: okay the last question i'd like to ask you right now is what would you say to someone who's listening um that could be struggling with an eating disorder who's been sexually abused and they are turning this on and going oh my gosh i relate to a lot of this what would you encourage them with
2: there is hope I promise I know that in the depths of my disease, I felt so hopeless. But I also know that I remember sitting in that darkness and thinking if there's one person that I can share my journey with and can change their life or give them hope, it'll all be worth it. And I truly believe that there are so many women out here fighting for you guys. Um, Be brave. Have a voice. Reach out for help. Find organizations that can help you. Um, I know there's the National Eating Disorder Association, NIDA. There's down here in Florida, the Alliance for Eating Disorders. There's so many agencies that can help you. And just finding your voice, just like with the sexual abuse, it's the first step. Mm -hmm. It's just saying, you know what? This happened to me. It's not my fault. And I don't want to carry it any longer.
0: And then allowing people to come alongside of you and carry that with you and to find the healing. So good. Well, thank you, Holly, for being on. We appreciate you so much and all this great, great, great content that you've given us. You may be listening and saying, you know, I'm not ready to do any of this. I'm not ready to deal with my eating disorder or anything like that. And we would say that's, it's not fine, but we would say, please just keep listening and just keep coming back. Mm -hmm. We love you and we'll see you next time. Bye. See ya. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We would love for you to subscribe so that you can get each and every episode right away. We'd also love to see you rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends. Every time you share this podcast, it not only means the world to us, but it also gives us more exposure. So to learn more about us, go to treesofhope.org. Bye.